Welcome to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guide podcast. Today, I am joined by the amazing Ann Duncan, who is the CTO for Dell, specifically within the state and local government division, where she works with government and city leaders to completely rethink how they're implementing technology across their workforce and in their communities. She served as the Chief Information Officer of the United States Environmental Protection Agency, the CIO of Santa Clara, and the CTO of the Palo Alto Unified School District. And today we're really gonna be talking about tech, but also some of her experience working across the public and the private sector. I have some I have some meaty questions for her today, actually. And also, you know, what are some of the things that she has in mind as the skills and mindsets necessary that make a highly effective leader in this day and age in order for them to thrive in the future of work? And I'm really excited about this episode because Anne brings a breadth of knowledge that I think you all will love, more importantly. And if you're tuning in right now, from Oakland, California, or wherever you're at in the world, please let us know. Show us some love in the comments, and we'll definitely address any of your questions, but definitely give you a shout out to entertain you and engage you. So let us know where you're tuning in from. And please, I hope you all are staying safe and healthy as well. So mention us in the comments as we go throughout the show. And if you have any questions, definitely make sure you comment as well. Without further ado, let me bring the amazing Mrs. Duncan onto the show. Hey, Ann. Hey, Tim. Thank you for that incredible introduction. I'll try and live <laughs> up to it. <laughs> Thank you so much for finding time to be on the show today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's great. You know, how have you been hanging there during COVID-19? Well, you know, I've been getting to know my cats really well. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I'm a little, je- I, I'm, I'm both uh, feel blessed to have lots of work to do in uh, yeah. a job, and, and maybe a little envious of the people uh, deep into their home improvement projects. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> and I got a list, and you know, that I'm not getting to. I love it. I love it. You know, and I would love for you to share. You know, how long have you been working in the technology industry for now? Because you have such a later career. I know you and I have had a chance to talk about it in the past, but you know, what started your path in this industry? Well, you know, I, I almost want to say it's longer than I care to admit because um, out, out of college, I went to work for Hewlett Packard uh, wow. and I worked for HP for nearly 20 years before I left for the public sector. So I've, I've been in the technology industry since uh, eight, since 89. Um, mm. you know, my degree is in engineering, um, but I sort of you know got lucky in, in getting into HP when it was an amazing place to work. And um, so I've been, you know, in the tech industry in one way or another uh, for over 30 years now. Wow. 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 So shout out to Olaseni, who's tuning in from Maryland. Michelle, Michelin, who's t- Michelin or Michelin. I'm sorry, Michelle, if I mispronounced that, who's tuning in from Chicago. And shout out to Chris, who's tuning in from Milwaukee, home of the Fonz, he says. And Gladys, who is tuning in from New York. And my great friend, Louis, who's tuning in from Des Moines, Washington, but lived in Oakland for 20 years. So he's, he's, uh, he's native. He was native to the Bay area in the past. Thank you all so much for tuning in. So, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I would love to ask you the moment you realized that, you know, tech was a, a career or the industry that you want to pursue. What was that moment for you? Um, well, you know, I think, um, I sort of stumbled into engineering college. Um, yeah. Uh, and then I realized that I just loved, you know, I'm an industrial engineer by education. So what I love about what I do, what I, what I did then and what I do now 
is I get to combine people and technology. Yeah. Engineering is all about people and technology and leading in in industry is about people and technology. So I think it was sometime when I was in college when I realized that I loved that intersection of people and technology. And that was what Mm. I was passionate about. Mm. Mm, that's powerful. You know, I'm often telling people that, you know, it's not just about the technology. It's about how do people engage with it? You know, mm-hmm. if you're building any service, any product, or you, if you're even building kind of a, a organizations, like think about how is the technology stack is how are you creating services internally and externally that really engage your people and are natural or familiar to them? Right. Right. Well, one of the biggest lessons government has been learning is the idea of user centered design. Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah. The, the technology is actually about the users and not the technology and not about the people designing it. But you got to talk to the people who actually use it to, to build good technology. And that's a, a you know lesson that the private sector has been learning for a while and the public sector in the last decade kind of clued into that we got to do that, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's dive deep on that. Right. Because, you know, right now, I think there's a lot going on in the public sector as well as the private sector wanting to address what we're all facing in terms of COVID-19. But this focus on user centered design, I want to ask you a little bit about, you know, where do you think government leaders and public institutions have an opportunity to start approaching things from a more user centric lens? Well, you know, I think it goes back to rethinking how they design and build things. And, yeah. and it, it, you know, we what tends to happen in government is that that the stakeholders who are usually the people who spend a lot of time with the system, but they're mm. a very small number of people, they tend to dictate what the design is going to be. And yeah. that happens when they write a whole bunch of requirements up front. And then, you know, they send this out to bid. And then when they're done, you get something that probably wasn't what you wanted anyway. Um, and, and so for them to step back and to embrace the ideas of Agile, which then lead yeah. us to the idea that, that, that development is an iterative process. And if it's an yeah. iterative process, then you need to understand who's the user, right? So, mm. so finding ways to engage with the user, whether it's your employees or whether it's the public, mm. um, is, is, is the huge opportunity. And, you know, I have a quick story about when I was at EPA, when we were working on a project and um, you know, when I, when, when my CTO, Greg Godbat and I got into this project, um, EPA was sort of in trouble, right? They're getting a lot mm. of oversight and the federal government, when you get a lot of attention from oversight, it's not a good thing. It's not and, a good thing at all. <laughs> yeah. And they were basically spending three out of four weeks a month responding to oversight and they weren't getting anything done. And wow. one of the things we learned really early when we dug into that project was they were getting ready to build the wrong thing. Mm. They had never actually talked to the users. And the user community was the public. And this, by the way, was a voluntary um, product. So that meant that um, members of the public could use it or not. It was a fee-based voluntary solution. Um, Mm. So if they hadn't designed the right thing, no one would have used it. And it would have been a complete waste of government money. Um, So when they went out and started talking to the users of the system who were waste haulers and waste creators and waste disposers, they discovered that they didn't need the EPA to create this big system. They already had a system. What they needed yeah. was the EPA to create some ways to interface with that system and to track waste and to do some things. Um, and that redesigned completely the product EPA built um, because they went out and talked to the users. Um, yeah. So, you know, our opportunity is just really to rethink how we work and yeah. who we engage in that process and yeah. who matters in the process. 
Yeah. So when you when you were looking and working on that on that project, you know, I, I, what were you thinking as you were kind of seeing the process unfold in terms of some of the challenges that leaders completely failed to 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 pay attention to? Well, you know, I think the I think the challenge was that that they had a process of the way they always done things and, and the way yeah. they always did things was very internally focused. And so the challenge was to, to redirect that lens, to be yeah. externally focused, to be, to really take time to think about what the public, or in this case, the business community needed from their product. Um, mm. And it was the other part of that is that it required them to empower the, the team, the staff yeah. directly in that work. Um, and the government, you know, tends to be very hierarchical. I mean, organizations yeah. in general are hierarchical, but the government is particularly very. hierarchical. And so instead of this middle manager or the senior executive making a decision about what the system was going to be, they really needed to allow the, it to become whatever it needed to become. And that required yeah. letting go, which is not something as leaders in the government were particularly good at. <laughs> you know, let go and let the team figure it out. Um, yeah. and, and that, that's, that's a big part of the lesson, um, in that, and, you know, and the end result was it saved a ton of taxpayer money, not only because they built the right thing, but because the right thing was much simpler and mm. less expensive to build than the wrong thing. Mm. That's powerful. That's powerful. So Chris is saying you have to lead with experience by understanding users as opposed to leading with technology. Shout out to Chris, mm -hmm. who's actually, Chris, who's actually a senior user experience designer. And what are your thoughts on that? Oh, he's 100% right. Um, you, know, you absolutely <laughs> have to, to lead with that experience as opposed to what you think the answer is, right? It, it, it's yeah. let the user lead you where they need to go. Right. Yeah. You know, I, as someone, I'm a, I'm a trained designer. I think I, I mentioned this to you, Anne, and, you know, it still kills me when I talk with executives and leaders, how many of them don't pay attention to thinking about the organization. But also, I think serve customers from an experience lens. I mm -hmm. think for a long time, you know, I think business is shifting in today's day and age, right? To being just a matter of a transaction, to a matter of developing a relationship. And what I love about your background is that you've seen this in the public sector as well as the private sector. You know, I want to ask you, what are some of the common things that you've noticed across both sectors? Yeah, so I think that the common theme is that technologists love to build technology right? and, yeah. and, and they love to, you know, we used to joke at HP and it was a joke, but it was very serious, which is you had to get the engineers to stop designing and use <laughs> the product because they yeah. always have one more new feature they wanted to put in. And yeah. you know, if you think about, for example, a Microsoft product, you know, all those features that you never use, right? Yeah. And 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 those add complexity. And when we were building hardware, we were building printers, yeah. most of my career at HP, every one of those new features adds complexity to your product, whether it's the hardware, yeah. the firmware, the software, it makes it more complicated, harder to test, harder to deliver, and more mm. expensive. And harder and, to manage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and, you know, it's not adding necessarily adding value to the customer. So yeah. the lesson number one is that engineers need to listen to the customers instead of developing cool stuff. I mean, yeah. the great thing is engineers develop cool stuff and they have a great, amazing ideas. But sometimes you have to say, OK, now stop developing cool stuff and talk to someone and find out whether they want that yeah. right? and whether they want it as it is or they want more. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and now as we go to software products where, you know, you can talk to the customer and show them an MVP. Um, that's even more powerful. So that's, you know, probably the one of the biggest commonalities among anywhere is that 
technologists will be technologists no matter where they are yeah. and they're creative and inventive. And sometimes you have to say, stop and deliver a product. <laughs> and let's iterate with the customer feedback. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's one of the principles that, you know, you and I, you know, align to when it comes to thinking about agile and how do you think about mm-hmm. agile from an organization perspective and, and, a, and a software perspective. And, I, you know, the world is only becoming more complex. Uh, and, and, you know, I want to ask you, you know, do you think there are things leaders can do to implement and create this culture around agile? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do. And I think um, I think it's easier in the po- private sector than the public sector, but I think you can do it anywhere. Yeah. Um, and I think particularly in the public sector, um, but everywhere you have to um, make people feel comfortable taking risks. Mm. Because ultimately, when you are, if you're going to put agile, what's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is look for the hardest, most complicated, riskiest part of that project. And yeah. you try and figure out if it's going to work. Yeah. And you have to let employees feel like if they take a risk and they fail, then they're going to be okay Mm. Um, because they don't make those great leaps of invention if they don't think it's safe to fail. Um, And so what always fascinated me is, you know, it's really, really hard to get fired in the government. (laughs) It takes takes like really doing something obnoxious, not just failing at your work, but really doing something obnoxious. But yet government employees are incredibly risk averse. So getting them to understand that it's okay to take risks. And as leaders, what we have to do is we have to model the right behavior. When someone fails, we have to model the behavior that says, yep, you failed. That's okay. We failed together and we're going to move on to the next thing as opposed to sort of, you know, smacking them around and saying, you know, you, you, you did something wrong because then people will never try and take another risk. The other really important thing, um, particularly in the public sector is creating a culture that um, has a bias towards action, right? What's the next thing I'm going to do to move this forward? Yeah. What's the next cool activity I'm going to take on or the next boring activity I'm going to take on to get it done? Um, Because it's really easy, especially in the government, to wait for the next person, you know, okay, I don't do anything till so-and-so delivers something and I'll just wait till they do it. And Mm. um, being able to really jump in and say, yep, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move it forward. I'm going to figure out how to solve this this problem, clear this roadblock so I can keep going. I think those are a couple really important things, uh, but it's just, you know, it's ultimately about creating a culture where it's safe for people to take on this work. Yeah. You know, and I love what you're saying about creating a culture of, around around being safe to take risks. And, you know, one of the, the books I, I've read, and you'll probably love this, Anne, it's called The Fearless Organization. Mm-hmm. And in that book, I forgot the author, but what she really talks about is the fact that you want to create a culture around psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Right. If people don't feel psychological safe to share an idea, ask a question or take a risk. You're going to lose the, the, the best potential that you have in your talent. Absolutely. It's it's really true um, that uh, that there's that if people don't feel like they can take a risk, they're going to just take the safe path, the boring path. And you're going to get results that match that safe and boring path. Uh, and, mm. you know, private sector organizations do a lot of things often. Um, and right now is a time where it's really likely for them to do those things that make people want to hunker down and not take chances. And so we need to double <laughs> yeah. down on finding ways to make people feel safe enough to take chances. And one of those is, you know, figuring out ways that we can all share the pain of what we're going through as opposed to random layoffs or appearing random mm. appearing layoffs, right? So how do you make an organization safe right now so that yeah. people can get out there and take risks? Um, without feeling like if I screw up, I'm going to be the guy who goes out the door next because we're cutting people. Yeah, you know, and I've, I've actually had friends reach out to me and letting me know that, you know, they're overworking 
during mm-hmm. this time because they they're so scared that they yeah. may be the the next one out. And you know, we would love your thoughts, amazing guide community. What are your thoughts? How can organizations continue to drive psychological safety within their culture, especially during times like this? Let us know in the comments below. Shout out to Hanin who is tuning in from Seattle, Washington, and Dwayne Powell who's tuning in from Canada. So you know, let's 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 dive a little bit deep about the current context and the and the and the shift and how so many organizations and are moving towards remote work as well as flexible workplace policies, right? I've seen a few organizations talk about work from anywhere or remote, let's do remote work now. And they're embracing this, this ethos and this culture. I want to get, what are your thoughts on this shift right now? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I've been doing at Dell is talking to lots and lots of CIOs. And so, yeah. um, you know, one of the, and I've been asking them, what do you think? What's happening? Right. Is this going to, is this permanent? And I think, the general sense among everyone I talk to is that a fraction, a portion of this is permanent, right? There, yeah. and, and it's a huge change in the public sector, right? Because a lot of the private sector had already shifted to more working at home. And, you know, Jack Dorsey came out and said to everyone at Twitter, if you like being home, stay there forever. Forever. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, right. um, you know, right now people would be going, no, I don't want to be at home. Um, yeah. But I think generally, you know, what we find is people, they work at home and they're, they're more productive. Um, and, and often people work too hard when they work at home, they, they have trouble creating those boundaries. So I think that organizations are going to stick generally with the shift for people for whom it makes sense. Um, I think there are things that we need. So, so there's things we need to do to enable that. There's also an interesting comment someone made to me, which was, yeah, people are reproductive now because there's nothing else to do. But when <laughs> life comes back, are they still going to be really productive? So that's an interesting question. I think people will. I think most people, I think your poor performers may be less productive in the future because they were your poor performers. Um, And right now they're busting their butts because they don't, they don't have anything else to do. They don't want to lose their job. But in general um, we need to, I I think the reality is, and this is what I've always struggled with working home is there's value to interactions in the office. Um, And we're not, we don't have the technology that's good enough to replicate that. We don't have, you know, a, a VR space where we can all walk in and think we're having a cocktail party, right? Yeah, so not I yet. Think, <laughs> yeah, not yet. We'll get there. And, and But in the meantime, before we get there, I think what we may see some organizations do is things like they get rid of the traditional office and they basically create a meeting space, you know, and once a week or twice a week, everybody comes in and has all their face-to-face meetings. Or they let their team disperse all over the country and then a couple times a year, they bring everybody in for a week or two of intensive meetings, something that number one builds that community and number two helps those folks. You know, this is what I've always worried about is if everyone goes home, what are the, what is the 22 year old who just graduated from college just yeah. starting their career? Doesn't know anything. What do they do? It's mm-hmm. really, really hard to get that kind of mentoring in a fully virtual world. I mean, the tools are so much better than they used to be, right. You know, we're yeah. all having zooms with our friends now on the weekend. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but it's not as good as that being in the office serendipitous kind of stuff. And so I think at least for a few years until we get that VR space, that's so perfect, we are going to have to have some way where people can come together occasionally. Right. Mm. And, and, and we've done that for years with like Salesforce as they're remote, right. We, they bring them together once or twice a year, do the rah, rah, everyone socializes. And so I think we'll see companies that really want to go virtual adapt something like that, either the one day a week or two days a week or a quarterly or bi-yearly kind of get together so that they continue to create those relationships. But I do think for a lot of organizations, this is going to stick. 
And then there are a bunch of organizations where, I mean, I talked to one CIO who's like, my boss is like the day that people are allowed back. I want them all in the office. Wow. So they're, and that's going to be a challenge because it's not like there's a switch we flip and you know, it's suddenly safe. It's going to be a long path to everybody can be in the office together all the time. What do you think about that mindset, you know, for, you know, I want them all back in the office. Do you think that's like a a good mindset to have um, in these times? Because, you know, I think now more than ever, you know, we're seeing worker reports and research reports say that a lot of people love this, right? A lot of workers love this. They feel as if we can be as productive from home. And then there's still that public health component and and perceptions like I'm scared to be around people, right? We're a lot more inverted now as a society. So do you think that, that, that leadership mindset is going to, is going to really be successful long-term? I think that those folks in the short term are definitely going to struggle with everyone's butt back in the chair. And I mean, that, that one, that was a public sector leader and that's very public sector mentality, which is, (laughs) you know, I count the butts in the chairs and therefore they're working. And that part of that goes to the, I have a union. I can't manage by objective. Um, you know, so there's a bunch of things that drive that, but it's got to change, right? Because the vast majority of your employees are hardworking, good performers. And instead of managing based on the, you know, 5, 10, 15% who aren't, you need to manage yeah. based on the 85, 90, 95% who are strong performers and who can manage by objective and who will do their work. Um, so I think those folks who are like all the butts back in the chairs at work are going to struggle because, yeah, people aren't going to want to come back. And plus, let's get real. You know, look how we're 17% reduction in global pollution yeah, is what that's is the number I saw this morning. It's huge. And I would rather spend the time I spend on the road going to some place to meet someone for dinner or to do yeah. something fun than commuting every day. So yeah. um, if we can find a way to reduce the amount of unnecessary trips, of the 38% of people who can work at home, let's do that, um, yeah. you know, and make it easier for the for the rest of the folks you know, that have to go in their offices because they can't have portable work or they, or they're going to a grocery store to feed us or whatever it is. Let's make it easier for them to get to work and you know, <laughs> go their way, right? So. 100%. I agree. So Dwayne is saying, I agree with you an hundred percent pal. Uh, uh, and so he, he's definitely feeling what you're saying. Chris is saying great points. Innovation often stems from Failing often and fast, diverge, converge, test and repeat. What do you think about that, Ann? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you don't, you you never know where the answer is until you mm. until you try something, and where you go may not be anywhere near where you expected when you started. The, the, yeah. the, the what fails and the feedback from your users and the test the test data can lead you to some place totally different. And you know, there are many things that were invented. Right. You know, from post-it note to the, you know, to, to other things that people weren't trying to invent. Right. They came yeah. up with post-it note looking for something entirely different. Um, and so um, there's great opportunities in being open to what where your invention takes you as opposed to having a plan. I mean, it should mm-hmm. be some plan. Right. We don't want people just being random. But yeah. There's a structure to success. Right. You, even in, in, in where you can. I, I like the talk about the creative process as structured chaos, right? Like every person that's a creative or as a technologist, when you're building anything, there's a process to it. But within mm-hmm. that process, you because you're incorporating feedback and you're thinking about, okay, does this drive value? Right. You're thinking about it from a structured lens, right? Because it's not just a matter of what I'm building. It's a matter right. of is what I'm building 
driving value. And, you know, that's the structure to any successful, I think, endeavor. So shout out to Chris for, for mentioning that, that great statement. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of things happening right now. And as you mentioned, due to COVID-19, whether they be stemming from leaders completely thinking about how they're managing their workforce. But one thing I've also noticed, Dan, is there's been a Cambrian explosion in ideas, right? A lot of ideas around industry, on, you know, how do we think about creating protective equipment that's not only mm -hmm. functional, but also fashionable, right? Yeah, we're, no, seriously. And we're now seeing a lot of people having conversations around, our, you know, our current healthcare crisis. Like, how do we prevent this from happening again and make sure that people have test kits immediately mm -hmm. on demand if this were to happen again? You know, there's there's so much innovation happening right now, which I'm excited about. And even within our sector, such as Guide, e-learning is growing. Right. You know, I want to ask you, what are a few what are a few of the biggest problems you think we need to be focused on solving for today? Wow, that's a great question. I have to mention I had someone offer me a hundred and twenty dollars silk uh, uh, face mask. Uh, <laughs> Italian silk. Yeah, I said that's amazing. I said, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. I, I'm good without the hundred twenty dollar face mask. Um, yeah, so I think um, you know public health is obviously an area where where there's huge opportunities for innovation. Mm. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that 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 um, has been left on the back burner for lack of funding into public health. Mm. Um, you know whether it's vaccine research um, or it's uh, the ability to to deliver personal protective equipment easily. Um, so I think there's huge opportunity. I mean, you're seeing people. 3D printing face shields for, you know, in, in their labs and in their garages. And um, so I think, I think that's a, a tremendous opportunity. I think, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a huge opportunity around educating people. And I don't quite know how we solve that problem because it's deeply yeah. embedded in our political and economic system right now. Um, but to the extent that technology can stop being, the problem and start being more of the solution to helping people get good information. Yeah. Um, I think that's something we really need to figure out um, because right now I think technology is more the problem than the solution in terms of sharing information with people. There's too much out there that's not curated, that's not correct. Yeah. Um, so that's a, that that's, that's an interesting challenge we've got to take on. Yeah, no, that's actually a, a, a huge focus. And, you know, it's, it's a conversation I've been having with a lot of people, um, mm -hmm. this this focus on where can we create platforms where people people can trust again, mm -hmm. right? And I think, and you know, especially even with COVID-19, there's been so much mixed information yeah. that a lot of people have been going to hysteria, you know, you know, partially because of, of the scare, but also because they've been consuming too much of what's not true. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. And, and it's now been, it's gotten to a point where what you consume can actually cause a health crisis. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's sad that we're in that day and age, but I completely agree with you. It's how do we create platforms where quality content prevails that you can trust? Yes. And, and I do think we need as a, as a society to do a little better with critical thinking uh, and understanding, hmm. understanding what we're consuming which is really a bit yeah. of a tangent from our conversation, but um, you know, people struggle when they read something that's true. And then the next day they read something that's also true that contradicts it. And it's because we're learning and uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, we thought that was right yesterday, but now we don't think that's right. It doesn't mean yeah. that was bad news yesterday. And so there's yeah. some, that evolution requires a level of critical thinking that 
I don't think we have cultivated in our education system, um, mm. which, you know, that is to your point, uh, education is a massive opportunity for us in terms of, of being able to figure out how to educate people through this crisis and how to educate people in a way that prepares them to be um, really effective adults and lifelong learners. Uh, yeah. So I think we need to educate people for lifelong learning, not here's what you learn through college and you're done now because technology yeah. is not going to allow people to be done. Yeah. And you've worked in the education sector too. So you've seen this firsthand. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I've worked in the education sector and I also um, have the privilege of being on the president's advisory board for my alma mater. And so I see what they're going through now. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a massive challenge to, to prepare students um, for lifelong learning and to change our educational system to facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, diving deep on that, you know, what do you feel are the, are the skills and mindsets that are going to make up highly effective future leaders? Right. I think you mentioned critical thinking, which mm -hmm. is number one, even for yeah. me, as well as creativity. Yeah. You know, but what are some of the others that you have in mind? Well, you know, right along with that is a growth mindset. Mm. Right? So and I, I suspect you're familiar with Carol Dweck's work on the growth, Very. growth mindset. Yeah. And so, you know, I first uh, saw that when I was in education, but it's everywhere now. Uh, yeah. Carol's, Carol's influence has gone far beyond education. Um, and it's usually important that people have that mindset um, to be willing to change, to be willing to learn and to grow as opposed to having a fixed mindset. And that's not just about learning new things, um, but it's also about reexamining uh, the environment that we're in and understanding people and situations in a way that's going to allow us to be more effective going forward. So I think, mm. I think that, you know, critical thinking plus a growth mindset, plus that willingness to um, uh, take risks, uh, you know, is, a, those are all things that are required for people to really be successful um, in a world where, you know, I mean, I started HP and I thought I was going to work at HP for the rest of my career. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and now, students graduate from college and, you know, they think, well, maybe I'll be here two years. And so yeah. in a world where you think you're going to be changing your jobs and potentially your entire career every couple of years, you've got to have those tools in your toolbox in order to be able to be successful or you're going to end up in a dead end somewhere. And we see that and you see it more in the public sector and the private sector, because unfortunately in the private sector, when that happens, you know, people get a very unpleasant goodbye. Um, but in the public sector, you see people who haven't learned anything in 20 years Mm. And they're stuck. They have nowhere to go. And and I I see that as a, as much of a failing of management as is of the employee that we allowed it to get to that point. Yeah. Um, but the fact that is people do have to own their careers and they have to own having that growth mindset and that bias towards learning and and you know critical thinking and all those things are going to make them successful in the future. Yeah, I love I love what you're saying because similar to be, you, I believe in this mindset of ownership of mm -hmm. your career. And, you know, I, I love that you're, you're saying that goes across any sector and mm -hmm. particularly in government where people are so risk averse. <laughs> I think now yeah. more than ever, you know, government leaders and, you know, us as a us as a as a cities have to think mm -hmm. about how are we driving economic progress by educating our, our citizens yeah. and making it easy for them to transition. Um, and I think even right now, as we're seeing so many layoffs and furloughs happening, mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure that you've been talking with a whole bunch of CIOs who are like, how are we going to adapt um, as a city, as a, as a, as a, as a government um, post all of this? Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, there's a bunch of things that this has brought out um, for cities and counties um, in, in states, you know, there's a huge budget gap. If you look at mm. 2008, 2009 recession, one of the things that slowed the recovery was because just as everybody else was starting to recover, 
the the states and cities started laying people off and counties. Wow. Third, I didn't even realize this until I saw the statistic. Thirteen percent of U.S. employees work for local government, state or local government. So when the state and local government's not doing well, it hurts across the board. So more money for state and local government coming out of this will certainly help tremendously. Um, and I know that the federal government is looking at more stimulus to state and local. Um, but uh, equally importantly, um, government's got to look at um, at their legacy systems, right? We, we've seen mm. the unemployment systems fail. We saw SBA systems, which are actually not bad in general. I know the SBA CIO, great CIO. She's done tremendous work there. They had a failure of their system in the loan program. Um, so all of these... Uh, all these legacy systems need to be attacked coming out of this. We need to get rid of, you know, all these systems run on COBOL. <laughs> they need to go. Mm. Um, and so, <laughs> but we've got to figure out how to fund that. There's no money. So, um, mm. you know, if, you, if, you, if, if they're going to be running huge budget deficits, the last thing they're going to take on is large modernization exercises. So coming out of this uh, recession, we, we got to figure out how to make our, our government more robust and more resilient. Um, and the fact of the matter is we've been starving government uh, as a strategy for decades now. And if mm. we want to have a better experience as a society, we've got to stop starving government and um, be willing to all pay our fair share to make that work. So that's not a very popular opinion, I don't think, in a lot of places. Yeah. The fact of the matter is you, you get what you pay for. And we're, yeah. seeing, we're, we've saved, we're seeing now what we paid for. Mm. Mm, that's powerful. That's powerful. You know what? Thank you so much, Ann, for being on the Unleashing the Future of Work A Guide podcast. You know, I want to ask you, where can the people follow more of your work and the things that you're leading with Dell? Well, you can find me on Twitter. Um, and my Twitter handle is <laughs> It's Ann Duncan. So you can, I, I got on there early. I got the, got the good handle. Um, and um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and you can also occasionally see me on podcasts, webinars, hopefully out in the public soon at events. Um, <laughs> so, love to love to have more people check out what we're doing. I'd love to have feedback on what we're doing. So feel free to, mm. you know, unlike Kai Rizdal, who always says, don't at me, you know, feel free to at me. Let me know what you think. Definitely make sure that you follow Anne on Twitter and be sure to at her and mention her about some of the work that she's driving and the work that Dell is doing to change the world. You know, if you can leave one message, one takeaway for our amazing community, what would it be on helping them take control of their careers? Um, so what I always tell people is don't get too comfortable. Mm. When you take on a job and it's, you know, feels safe and comfortable and, you know, Take a risk, right? I, I mean, I left a safe, secure government job to go be a political appointee, right? Which, mm. as a, you know, at the end of the term, you're done. But it was the most amazing job I ever had. Right. Um, so don't get too comfortable. Be willing to get out there and take risks because that's how your career is going to grow. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Anne. We appreciate you for coming on the show. Thanks, Tim. It's been great to be on. All right. Talk to you soon. Talk to you, man. <laughs> Bye. And that was another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guy podcast with the amazing Ann Duncan. If you are interested in being on a future episode or you know someone that you want to be a guest on a future episode, make sure that you have them go to utfow.com 
utfow.com to sign up as a guest as well as potentially a sponsor because we are looking for sponsors with that said thank you so much unleashing the future of work community for tuning in to another episode of unleashing the future of work a guide podcast i know so many of you all have been hitting me up talking about how much you love the show please be sure to share this episode out with your network on linkedin or a family member or a teammate or a friend who you believe would love this episode. And we really appreciate the amazing community that we're building around Unleashing the Future of Work, a guide podcast. If you have any feedback, once again, please reach out to me and definitely share this with your network. Make sure you mention Ann and I on LinkedIn or Twitter and let, let us know what you think and what you learned. With that said, peace, love, and I will talk to you soon. Bye, y'all.